F1 is all about seizing opportunities. On track, overtaking as soon as there's a chance. Fantastic move, that was stunning. Or making a pit stop at the perfect moment. And box to overtake, box to overtake. Can change a driver's race. Off track, taking opportunities can transform a driver's life. And in the days after his unexpected, unbelievable F1 race debut, Nick de Vries knew he had that opportunity. The phone just kept going and I really wanted to use the momentum and the buzz that was happening to conquer and create an opportunity for me in Formula One. Phone calls led to flights, meetings and finally a deal. Nick wasn't going to let this chance slip away and this is how he seized it. Hi, I'm Tom Clarkson, and I'm really excited to be bringing you this episode of F1 Beyond the Grid. It's the first in-depth interview with Nick de Vries since he found out he'd be driving for Alpha Tauri in 2023, a chance to reflect on how it all happened. He's shown his speed by winning the Formula 2 and Formula E championships and in F1 practice sessions. But his greatest chance of all came suddenly at the 2022 Italian Grand Prix. Nick De Vries is going to make his Grand Prix debut this weekend. Of course, uh, we wish Alex Albon a swift recovery. He has appendicitis uh, and will not be taking part in the remainder of the weekend. Nick thrown in. We'll see how he performs under pressure. Nick De Vries is going to score for Williams in ninth position. Well done to Nick De Vries. Wow, wow. Points on debut. It was an amazing debut drive, the kind that catches the eye of F1 teams looking to put a new star in their car for a full season. The race was over, but Nick wanted more, and he knew his chance would be lost if he didn't keep pushing. It's what he did next, off the track, that changed his life. It's awesome to hear him tell that story, and we recorded this at the Japanese Grand Prix just after Nick had been announced as an AlphaTauri driver for next year. As you'll hear, he's still taking it all in. Listen out for the moment towards the end of the interview when we have to move so a very important person can use our interview room. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Nick, many thanks for your time. It's great to have you on the show. You being the latest full-time Formula One driver on the grid, just how good does that sound? It sounds absolutely amazing and something I've been dreaming of my whole life, working towards a very long time. And it's been a, a long and tough journey. And to kind of get the opportunity to fulfill that childhood dream, yeah, it's just, uh, it's just great. The fact that you've had to fight so hard, and you know, you're 27 now, let's not forget, that's 10 years older than Max Verstappen was when he came in. But does it make it all the sweeter, the fact that you've had to fight so hard? I think everyone walks their own path. So regardless of my age or how I got here, I think is, is almost irrelevant. It's very relevant for me personally, but for getting the opportunity is, is irrelevant because I think getting the opportunity, you know, when the time is right is, is all that matters in the end. For me personally, it's obviously been a roller coaster of a, of a journey and it does feel even kind of better to, to now get the chance after, you know, at times I probably would have thought it would have been less likely to ever fill my dream. But at the same time, I never really gave up on it. 
What's been the reaction around the world? I couldn't help but look at the Dutch newspapers the day after the announcement, front page. Yeah, everyone's support has been overwhelming. I mean, outside the paddock publicly, but also very much in the paddock from other drivers. It's been a pleasure to receive so much positive support. But at the same time, I try also to to remain grounded and and I try to seize this moment and and enjoy it, be grateful for it. But uh, soon also the future and a new challenge will uh, will start. Can you tell us a little bit about the negotiations and when everything started? Because I believe it all happened very quickly. Well, to me, it almost feels like a 12-month marathon because after winning Formula E last season, obviously there were strong conversations with, with Williams uh, to potentially take George's seat because he was going to Mercedes. That didn't happen. And then naturally... The kind of conversation for 23 almost started, you know, instantly, and and that doesn't happen on on a daily basis very actively. But you know, still, it's it's in the air. I was a reserve driver for Mercedes, well, already last season as well as for for Williams. So uh, that contact has always remained, and the relationship was was growing between myself, Williams, and Yost and the team. So I felt like it was a very lengthy process, and at the same time, I also needed to secure a career outside Formula One because, you know, I can't build my future on hope. I I need to be uh, realistic about it. But at the same time, I didn't want to give up on on my dream and goal. And juggling with those balls uh, felt very intense and at times exhausting, but we never really gave up. And um, when it really kind of started was obviously when the kind of Oscar conversations and scene was, was starting publicly. And then when Fernando decided to pursue a different direction and commit to Aston, then obviously that, you know, brought a whole different momentum to the city season. And then eventually Monza happened uh, out of, well, nowhere almost. Alex's misfortune obviously uh, became my fortune. felt very sorry for him. And it, 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 in a way, it feels strange to kind of capitalize on someone else's uh, misfortune. But... Yeah, that's how it uh, kind of went. Can we talk about that Monza weekend then? You start in the Aston Martin in FP1, do a great job. Everyone at the team has told me that. When did you know that you were going to be racing for Williams that weekend? Yeah, I was really relaxed on the Friday evening. I went down to Mercedes, meet my friends there, and I stayed till probably 11.15 at the track, talking with them how their Friday went and you know, just, you know, just social chat, and I was happy to stick around. I generally like to stay at the track in the, in the evening. Yeah, I went to bed at midnight, which is way past my bedtime. And then, obviously, I wasn't really able to oversee what was going to happen in the future. And on Saturday morning, I was in the pedal club, uh, drinking a cappuccino, was quiet. And then suddenly, James Vals called that I had to come down to the Mercedes engineering truck because uh, there was a chance I would be racing. And I just couldn't believe it. Ten minutes early, we had conversations about the future, like, you know, what is happening. And and then suddenly he, he called back and said, you're driving. And I just couldn't comprehend with the situation. And everyone was quite happy for me. But I was like, guys, well, let's, you know, hold on a second. And then I went down to Williams. And obviously it became very quickly clear during the FP3 briefing that I was going to race that weekend. And Literally, this was happening one and a half hour before FP3. 
It's an amazing story. And you did drive for them in FP1 back in Spain. So, I mean, this might seem a silly question, but overalls, helmet, was that already at Williams just in case? Yes, that that was ready. Obviously, and your seat as well, I suppose. So Correct, yeah. I'm obviously also a reserve at, at Williams, so everything was, was prepared in terms of seat, kit, helmet, etc. However, it's, it, it was a while ago I had driven their car and their simulator, and I was actually running Alex's wheel in Spain, but I chose to run Nicholas's wheel in, steering wheel, in, in Monza because that one was a little bit closer towards me. Still too far, but closer. But some of the switches and everything was was different. And it's hard to, you know, stay on top of everything when you're driving so many different cars. How I usually approach it when the moment is about to happen or when when it's coming, I do my homework and then I'm prepared. But this obviously came um, unprepared. Uh, But the team was was great. They were very welcoming. And we we kind of just focused on on the essentials and and what I really needed to know to, to get going. And what was your goal for that weekend? Because actually, there isn't a better weekend to have been driving the Williams. I think poor Alex, I remember him saying to me at the previous event at Zandvoort, I'm really looking forward to Monza. The car's going to be really quick there. It's our big opportunity of the year. So it was slippery in a straight line. So, you know, did you think going in that points might have been in the offing? Well, I think what what was playing in my advantage was that I, I had no time to think. I was so kind of relaxed on Saturday morning, like had a good sleep, came into the track, you know, not expecting what was going to happen. And then suddenly I got thrown into it. And I just remember when when I got the call, I messaged my family and girlfriend saying, I'm driving. And I didn't see my phone since. I got stuck in in the engineering office and the garage and I haven't seen any other people or, or I couldn't have any distractions because it was just that. And uh, obviously I was very fortunate that the package was strong at Monza and you know there were some grit penalties, there were some retirements. Without the safety car, we would have not even finished because we had brake issues prior to the safety car. So all the stars were aligned and um, I'm grateful for that. Was it helpful that you'd driven the Aston Martin in FP1 so you were sort of up to speed with the track or does that only sort of confuse matters being in a different car? I guess it helped to kind of had some track time in the same weekend on that track. The car was very different and and with Aston I obviously had a a bit of a different program but yeah I think it did help to be a a little bit better prepared for what was coming. Now you actually qualified 13th. How good was the lap? Yeah, I think generally I wasn't fully satisfied with qualifying. I felt like there were too many little small mistakes here and there. That's me being critical. Of course, I only had, you know, 35 minutes in FP3 to to get ready. But in the race, it was almost easier to manage that because in qualifying, you've got one lap. And, you know, one small mistake means the end of the lap. My Q1 lap two was very competitive. That time would have been like on the edge of going through to Q3, but that was deleted. Luckily, my second best lap time was just enough to yeah to move into Q2. And then in, in Q2, my second lap, sector one was great, but in the first chicane, I hit something on the steering wheel, which moved the brake balance one and a half percent rearwards. Accidentally. Accidentally. It was not, a, not intended and clearly my mistake because it wasn't 
well, it wasn't really on purpose. Uh, and then arriving into turn four, I obviously locked up the rears massively and that's how I lost uh, the lap. So let's say it was a, a little clumsy. I, I, I had a lap time deleted, which was a great lap. And I touched something on the wheel, which put the brake balance rearward. So it wasn't perfect, but at the same time, it was also decent. Definitely decent. Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, with all the grid penalties, you line up P8 on the grid alongside Max Verstappen. It was the Dutch line of the grid. I mean, how welcoming was Max? What was that like? That was unique. We, we've known each other since we were kids. We've grown up in the same era of racing. We, I think, approached karting and racing in our earlier years very similar. We both uh, traveled around in a van with our uh, dads. Yeah, we just really respected each other and we always, you know, we saw each other every weekend pretty much. But strangely, because Max is obviously two years younger than me, we never raced against each other. So Monza was actually the first time in our lives we raced against each other. And ironically, we even end up next to each other on, on the grid. And we were texting about it the evening prior to the race, so on Saturday evening. And we were texting again on Sunday morning and um, on the grid, he, he came to see me and he kind of, as an older brother does, he came to me and just, you know, encouraged me a little bit, which was very kind. He's been very supportive. What about the other drivers? I, I definitely sensed in Monza that there was a, 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 an outpouring of goodwill towards you. Everyone very happy that you were getting the break. You know, I mean, the Mercedes guys, George and Lewis. Yeah, I mean, George and Lewis were, uh, Lewis actually sent me a message on, on Saturday night as well, which was, uh, which was super kind and uh, both uh, Lewis and George congratulated me after the race and, and hugged me and everything. So receiving their support meant the world to me. And it was um, very overwhelming to, to receive the support, not from the outside, but very much from the inside. They know what it takes. They know what it is. And, and to feel, yeah, that good willing was good. Nick DeVries is going to score for Williams in ninth position. Cracking job from De Vries. Let's listen in to the radio with Nick De Vries. Wow, wow. Points on debut. Great job, Nick. Fantastic. You're so much deserving. Thank you, Jost. Thank you. Much appreciated. My shoulders are dead. Dead. I can literally not even lift my arms anymore. Now, what about the race? Much, much longer races than, you know, recently in, in Formula E. I want to come on to Le Mans this year, actually. Of course, that's that's a long race. But I remember seeing you afterwards. You look pretty spent physically. I was, and, and I will not deny that I think currently I'm not fit enough or fit enough. I mean, I did complete the race and I didn't make mistakes, but I'm not as fit as, you know, the drivers on the grid. They've already completed 18 races and they are really race fit and, and frankly speaking, in the past 12 months, I had different priorities. I was juggling not with three balls, but with six balls. And it was not a matter of being fit, but actually, you know, getting the opportunity. And, and that's a difficult balance because sometimes I would spend days behind my laptop and the phone. And then I was I kind of knew I was missing a gym session, but it's the kind of trade of you make. Well, you know, you can be as fit as you like, but if you're not racing, then the fitness isn't bringing you anywhere. But historically, I've always been in F2. I, I was always, uh, you know, very fit and never struggled. And I really enjoy training uh, and I think I'm uh, committed to the job. So it was just a different priority, but I was clearly exhausted. 
you mentioned sort of being behind the laptop doing lots of work because I think you're unique on the grid in, in not having a manager. It, it, well, you and your dad. Am I right in saying that? Well, uh, my, my, I've been a bit more outspoken about my family because I feel this is very much our kind of accomplishment because they've been in the background my whole life. And he's not my, I mean, he's not, I am kind of the one, yeah, dealing with everything at the end. So do you do your own negotiations? Yes. People look at that and, and they, they might be opinionated about it. But don't forget, I have a lot of people that I trust that are on the background and I talk with. I'm not alone on the ship, if that makes sense. Nick, I'm interested that you, you choose to do it that way. I mean, Gerhard Berger never had a manager and I asked him why on this show. Okay. And he said because he didn't want to give 20% of his salary to someone else. That was his motivation. Just... Why do you choose to do it yourself when I'm sure there's a million managers out there who, who would want someone like you on their books? Well, it was not necessarily a decision that I deliberately want to be dealing with everything myself, but I kind of got into that situation. And I think, you know, the past 12 months, I was also quite in a quite complicated situation, you know, managing opportunities outside Formula One and inside Formula One. And uh, frankly speaking, I think, the necessity of a manager outside Formula One, I think, is is much was well, less important than than inside Formula One. But obviously, working with a manager, not knowing whether you're you know you you're gonna be there, it's just it was a bit of an awkward situation. I think the way I've uh, managed everything also brought me here today with who I am. But I will look for help around my career in the very short term because I wanna offload myself with some work and, and want to focus on my performance on track because ultimately that's all that matters. Do you feel you understand the business inside out because of all of the negotiating and other stuff other than driving you've had to do? A lot about this world and in general is about personal relationships and I think that the advantage of you know being or looking after your own career even though I had a lot of advice on the background is to build up the personal relationships. And if you always put someone in front that deals with everything for you, people actually don't get to know you and, and you never get the chance to show yourself. And apart from the fact that I think it's my character and I enjoy building up personal relationships in any environment, I think that that is uh, yeah, an advantage of looking after your own interests. So let's talk now about uh, what happened after Monza. You do that tremendous race, you finish P9. The whole Formula One paddock is buzzing with the name Nick de Vries. I'm assuming that Jos Capito was uh, on the phone immediately saying, now, 2023. <laughs> <laughs> Just what happened? How much can you tell us? Yeah, it, again, it was very overwhelming. Uh, at the same time, I think my experience and maturity helped me kind of remain very grounded because it, it was a great experience and you know I'm, I'm very grateful for everything that happened that weekend because I want to acknowledge that we had the necessary luck and support during and post post weekend. My dad happened to be there uh, coincidentally because he was in Monaco in my apartment and when he found out I was racing he, he drove down to, to Monza. By the way we are very emotional. We don't talk about it but we are very emotional. So on Sunday morning, I got into the track. He was already there at the kind of Heineken lounge. I gave him a hug and we couldn't even exchange a word because I could feel we were both about to cry. And on the grid, he was there with me standing in front of my car. And afterwards, I saw his interview with Dutch television. And 
He literally couldn't say a word. He was just crying. So on Sunday evening, we drove back to Monaco. And on uh, Monday morning, we woke up together. We went to the beach because I live opposite of the beach. And uh, we just put a towel on the sand and went into the water and stared in front of us and enjoyed the moment. But the phone just kept going. And we're from the north of the Netherlands and people see us as farmers. But we're also very grounded. and. I really wanted to use the momentum and the buzz that was happening to conquer and create an opportunity for me in Formula One in 23. So quite quickly, we went back to yeah, reality. What was the first move? Who made the first move? Was, was it Dr. Marco? So we were obviously in close conversations with Williams for a longer time. And uh, I spoke to Jost on, on the Tuesday after the, the weekend. The Alpine test was always already scheduled it was scheduled way before monza actually i went to the alpine facilities just ahead of spa but then i had dinner with max on on monday evening in monaco to kind of celebrate and just have dinner together and we talked about it openly and um, about the possibilities and opportunities and and then we we talked about potentially you know alpha towery dr marco and and um, yeah that's how it went and later that week I was uh, obviously seen in, in Graz and I spent two days in, in Austria. How did you find Dr. Marco? Because he's, he's a hard taskmaster. We had a, a great time together. We spent two days eating Austrian local food, talking about the future together. Uh, he has a good sense of, of humor and, and we respected each other. And I think he appreciated me yeah, for, for being there, representing myself and having the conversations with with him um, directly and and you know Red Bull is all about performance and and winning and um, I, I I share that so um, it was very straightforward and, and enjoyable and you knew in those two days where your future was going to be well obviously it was not entirely uh, in, in in our hands uh, the, the the deal was a bit more complicated as everyone understands but Basically, that trip made me understand that, yeah, there, there was a very good chance that I could be on the grid uh, in 23. If the musical chairs ended with Pierre Gasly leaving, you were going to be in. That's in that seat, correct. Yeah, that's fantastic. Now, what about Red Bull? Because, you know, you, you were a karting world champion. You, you know, you won Formula Renault champion, Formula 2 champion, Formula... I, I find it hard to believe that Red Bull didn't try and put you on their young driver program years ago. I obviously signed with McLaren at a very young age. Um, we just talked about it before walking up here. And the first time I met McLaren was in 2009 in Monza. And actually, someone introduced me to Dr. Marco as well. But I don't think he, he will recall that moment because it was very briefly. But we, we ended up signing for McLaren at the end of that year and then I was always a McLaren kind of young driver for the yeah pretty much the majority of my career and after that when when we won Formula 2 and I started building up a relationship at Mercedes I think in the public eye I was also always very much perceived as a, as a Mercedes driver although our re relationship was formally limited to formally contract and a reserve driver contract now obviously we were you know, building up a friendly relationship, yeah, up together with, with everyone in the team. But I think I was, yeah, always seen as a Mercedes driver. And I think that Monday evening after Monza made me understand that that could have its limitations. So 
it was important to to clarify my situation to to the people that uh, yeah make the calls. And how excited are you to be racing so many of the guys that you raced in the junior formulas? Somehow it doesn't. That's why somehow it doesn't feel like such a different environment. I've been walking around the paddock for the past two years as a reserve driver. I've probably grown up with almost 75% of the of the current drivers on the grid and we all you know know each other and respect each other so it just feels right. Can I ask you about some of the other stuff you've been getting up to recently in 2022 to begin with because you're in this unique position of having driven lots of different cars the Williams obviously uh, in FP1 in Spain and Monza, of course, the Aston Martin at Monza, the Mercedes at the French Grand Prix, and again in a couple of weeks' time in Mexico, the Alpine 2021 car. Just how do you get your head around all these different cars? Well, in, in, in principle, they're all very similar. And, and, and this will, I don't want to make it sound too uh, simple, but ultimately it's, it's a racing car. It has, you know, four wheels, a steering wheel, and the, the principles and basics of racing are, are the same in every discipline, not only between different Formula 1 cars, but as well as in sports cars in Formula E and across any championship. Obviously, everything around it is a little bit different. And in Formula 1, yeah, the the tools in the car, the operations of a steering wheel are, are quite different. But as I said, the way I approached it was simply kind of, you know, how you would prepare for an exam. You postpone it, you postpone it. And then the day prior, you start studying. Well, that's pretty much mine has been uh, my approach um, towards those outings. Because you can't expect from yourself that you you know those steering wheels inside out for 365 days a year while you're driving five days in the whole year. It's just not not possible. Plus, you need to put your focus and emphasis in many other areas as well but it's been a great experience to not only drive the cars but to really get an inside look of how teams operate because there is probably a, a, an as much of a dis- difference in the car behavior as how people uh, operate as, as, as a team. Difference in car behavior but up until that last half second are we actually saying that all Formula One cars are very similar up until that last tiny bit. Um, no, I wouldn't say so. No, I think the the characteristics are all very different and they all have different philosophies to achieve almost the same, but obviously different. And and if you look at, for example, this year at, at the three top teams, how different they, they are in pure performance, not having even spoken about everything, you know, that happens in the background and how they you know, work towards that that performance. So I think the differences are, are quite significant and bigger than, than you would probably appreciate when you're watching the time screens. So taking the car to the limit is, is different? Well, the feeling, the feeling you get from the car to take the car to the limit, like all the cars have different characteristics and it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, they are seconds apart, but the, the feeling you get from it is is just different when you drive it on the limit, if you like. Have you ever driven the perfect Formula One car? I think a perfect car doesn't exist. Nothing is ever perfect. There are always compromises to make. You know, on a track you have various corners, low, medium, high-speed corners. You have 
the tyrothermal effect that plays a role. If you simply take Barcelona as, a, as an example, you'll often start the lap with a bit more understeer than, than you finish the lap when you build up the tire temperatures through, through the last sector. So it's never perfect. And that's why you use the tools in the car to preempt what's coming. You might you know, open the diff a little bit in uh, the first part of the, the track and, and close it more towards the end, or you use you know, the brake settings to, to influence that. So, so it's always uh, a moving target. Now, look, talking of moving targets, I want to ask you about Le Mans now, because uh, you were there in June as Toyota's reserve driver, yet you ended up racing an LMP2, a last-minute call-up. Just can you tell us about that weekend? And I've spoken to Anthony Davidson about it, and he just said you did the most amazing job. Uh, in the car, I think you set fastest lap, fastest stint, I think, as well in the race. But but th- there's a good story here. Yeah, I was in, in Lamar. I've, I was basically, when I joined Mercedes as a Formula E driver, kind of end of 2019, uh, I quite shortly joined Toyota in the beginning of 2020 as their test and reserve driver. So I've been, you know, part of their team for quite some time now. And I was present at Lamar to be their reserve, prepared for anything. And... I remember on the, I think it was on the Friday evening, it was probably 2 a.m. I received uh, a call from Xavier Comba, if I'm pronouncing his surname correct, basically TDS. TDS also runs racing team, the Netherlands, Jumbo. So I was familiar with the team, but he called me and he asked whether I was, you know, ready and available to jump in the car. And obviously I was very keen, obviously I had to discuss it with, with Toyota, but they were, they were very supportive and cooperative. So... I spent the Saturday, you know, making a seat and getting up to speed with everything again. I did zero laps, zero. I mean, mind you, normally in Le Mans, you have to do time in the night to qualify for the race, etc., etc. Sadly, the car had lost. The reason why I was driving was because that gentleman driver had a tough time and had been involved in some of some incidents and therefore uh, was kind of suspended from the event. And the person that qualified went so many times outside of track limits that we started last. Well, LMP2 was a, a huge grid. Correct me if I'm wrong, but there must have been 30 cars or something. So Sunday morning, I jump in for the warm-up, and yeah, I, I, it, it went well. I was quickly on the pace, and we started the race, obviously coming from last. And, you know, in LMP2, you're very much... You know, the, the lineup is very important to fight and be competitive for for a good good result because you have the the ranking so you have uh, platinum gold silver uh, and bronze drivers and as our bronze left and i joined we suddenly moved from the pro-m category in lmp2 to the kind of well pro class if you like and the race went great the team was great and yeah we came from last to fourth and I was fortunate enough to have the quickest averages and yeah, that actually happened twice. The the past two Le Mans, I had the the quickest averages, but I've been lucky, you know, because I'm I'm so light uh, and that's clearly playing in in my advantage. So I I really love everything about that race. And um, one day, but hopefully I can postpone it a long time forward, I can come back to Le Mans to actually fight for a win. Nick, you're being very modest. Your, your composure, I can see, must help you in, in these weird situations that you find yourself in when you're just dropped, parachuted in um, at the last minute. How do you find the whole sharing a car 
with other drivers? Because, you know, you are a single-seater beast at heart, aren't you? Yeah, you asked earlier, you know, what was the perfect Formula One car you had driven? And, and I think from that regard, I learned a lot in endurance racing. During my time in Formula Two, when, when I decided to combine that with WEC to join Racing Team in the Netherlands, because I think through my junior single-seater category, I was often too rigid. And I was always striving for too much perfection. And that kind of limited my freedom to sometimes, you know, let my intuition and talent do my job. Actually, when I joined Racing Team in the Netherlands and there was a lot of fun and compromises to be done in anything or in everything, I, I learned that, you know, sometimes you just have to get on with it. I think that part of endurance racing was very valuable because sometimes in single-seater racing, you know, when you, already with your seat, you make two, two, two different seats, you're never happy. And in endurance racing, I was sharing the car with Fritz, Van Aert and, and Guido van der Garde, who were much taller than me and nothing was ever perfect, but you still got to do your job and you still got to jump in. And if the belts aren't, you know, fully comfortable, you just have to get on with it. And, and that opened my, I would say, my, my limitations is maybe a harsh word, but I was just always so much focused on every detail that it helped me learn to focus on the bigger picture. That was probably the most important thing I've learned from endurance racing and, and actually, in hindsight, uh, loved most about it, that it's a real team effort and you're looking for the best compromise uh, together and ultimately winning is more fun together than alone. Do you want to beat your teammates in endurance racing? Are you very competitive with the guys in the same car or are you looking at the bigger picture? Bigger picture. Ultimately, it's, it's, it's a team effort. And if you get asked to jump in again because that is in the team's interest, because you appear to be quick, then, you know, I'll be jumping in. But if, if I had a tough day, I would be the first one to, you know, push my teammate ahead because... Uh, it's a team effort and a team performance. So, yeah, definitely team's interest in, in, in that regard. Nick, let's throw it forward then to next year. What are the goals? I've had that question twice today and I wasn't really prepared for it because <laughs> everything has happened so quickly and it's just been announced and I'm seizing the moment and, and obviously looking forward to what is coming. But... AlphaTauri is um, assisted team from, from Red Bull. They share a lot of knowledge and, and resources. So I think the package and the team has a lot of uh, potential if we uh, use those resources in, in our benefit. And um, the team is based in Italy. I've spent a lot of time in Italy um, during my karting time. So it it just feels like a very welcoming and, and uh, nice environment. So... I really uh, believe we can we can do great things together, but it will require a good you know winter preparation together to get on top of things, and 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 then we'll give everything we have to uh, achieve the best. Yeah, we can. Can you speak Italian? Yes. How many languages can you speak? Four. Italian is my Italian is decent. Is uh, your Italian as good as your English? No, 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 <laughs> no. Um, but my Italian is is decent. Uh, French, below average, uh, and then obviously Dutch and English. I can actually write Italian as well, but I wouldn't be able to do that in French. But I think this will really help just ingratiate yourself with the team. I hope so, and I, I believe it, it, it will. And 
you know, the, this, the Italians have that kind of warm family approach and, and feeling towards that. And I, I enjoy that. And I think that that will encourage and also make me feel uh, at home. Nick, the Italians do. I'm not totally convinced that Franz Toss does. I always think of Franz as quite a hard, hard man with his drivers. Is that is that fair? Am I being fair? I think it's 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 um, it's rightly so to some extent. Like you, it's a very competitive world, and it's all about performance. And and ultimately, we're all here with the same objective, and that is to to win. And everyone has different personalities and, and characters, and everyone is different and I think it's important to appreciate every individual how they are and everyone will have strengths and weaknesses and it's up to me to kind of identify them and, and put the best together and, and extract the best from everyone in the team but I think it's yeah everyone and everyone deserves to have their own way of doing things and um, hopefully it will it will lead to the same goal because ultimately that's what we're here for. How well do you know Yuki Tsunoda, your future teammate? When he was in Formula 2, I was, I was one of his biggest supporters. He's obviously an, an entertaining uh, young guy and he is not afraid to, to speak his opinion. So I enjoy watching him. He is he's very talented and very, very quick. So I'm sure we'll have a, have a great time together and I, I look forward to... Uh, to be joining him. It will be the first time in my career I'll have a smaller teammate than me. <laughs> but we just figured we, we still have the same shoe size. So, <laughs> Did you catch up with him in Suzuka? Uh, yeah, we just did actually. Yeah, yeah. We, we did some bonding already, uh, uh, I think two years ago. We traveled together with, with Max once from Austria. They had a, a marketing event uh, near uh, the track at the Red Brewing. And I was there for an ELMS race, imagine. Uh, and we were traveling back together to, to Monaco ahead of the Grand Prix. And we did some um, yeah, bonding together. He's, he's a very keen chef. Are you Is a it? chef? Do you like cooking? Uh, well, I, I like to think that I um, am able to look well after myself. So I, I do cook. Yes. Now, look, <laughs> what about the 24 race calendar? It's the longest in Formula One history next year. Do you see that as an advantage or a disadvantage? Would you have preferred a bigger gap between the races to give you more time to reflect and maybe improve if that's what you need? I don't see it as a, an advantage or disadvantage. It's great that we have... Uh, so much interest from, you know, so many different countries around the world. And it's it's also exciting to be racing, you know, in so many different places. In all honesty, in terms of weekends away and intensity, I don't think it will be that much different because I've been doing probably similar amount of weekends in the past years. I, I do appreciate it's it's challenging, not only logistics, but team personnel and, and everyone involved with it very much because... I'm, I'm young and I don't have a family, but I imagine people at home, you know, have a, have a work private life balance to, to manage. But at the same time, you know, I don't see, uh, at least from my personal perspective, a lot of uh, issues. It's the same for everyone. And, and I just love racing. So I just look forward to it. I'm just imagining what Zandvoort is going to be like. <laughs> I mean, it's mental anyway, yeah. but with two Dutch drivers... Yeah, I mean, obviously, Max deserves all the support in the world, especially from our country. He is—he has been—he is, and he has been amazing. He—he—he he, he, he won a championship, and I think he will win uh, a lot more in in the near future. But hopefully, there will uh, there will be some Orange fans 
rooting and cheering for me too. I'm sure they will. Now, are there any particular tracks you're really looking forward to driving on in, in a Formula One car? I mean, you've always been really good at street tracks. You have a great record in the junior formulas in Monaco, for example. Yes, uh, but but I, I look probably most forward to tracks I, I haven't driven yet, which are quite a lot. I, I think there must be probably 10 on the calendar. I, I don't know yet. This one being one of them in Suzuka. And actually being here this weekend, probably I'm already looking forward to, to come here, come back here next year. Not only because the track is so amazing, but also because the Japanese fans are just so kind and respectful. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And I think everyone shares that. And there, you know, we haven't been here for quite a little while. And, and to see their enthusiasm again. And, you know, you leave your hotel in the morning and evening and they are there all the time. And... Uh, their respect is just phenomenal. And, and your teammate is going to be the focus of it next yeah, year as yeah. well. Isn't it? <laughs> um, your passion comes through so strongly, Nick. And I just wanted to ask, why motor racing for you? Where did your passion for the sport come from? Well, before kind of going back, just in the present or, or, sh or, or recent past, you know, in any other sport, you practice your sport every day. Football, tennis, basketball, golf, anything, you name it. You practice your sport every day. In racing, we don't. We, we race, we are talking about 24 races. And that's pretty much all we get to do in terms of racing and driving the cars physically. Obviously, we spend a lot of time in the simulators, but that ultimately never comes close to the kind of real sensations we get in the car. So I've always been a very big supporter and in favor of racing and driving as much as I can. And I think that helped me kind of becoming a more all-round uh, driver. Where the passion came from, well, clearly my family and father. He used to uh, sell cars. He had car dealerships. He raced a little bit himself. He actually had a small team to fund his own racing. So he raced Formula Renault, Renault 5 Turbo, and Renault Spider. Uh, and at the well, very- Hang on, hang on. Was dad quick? Well, <laughs> uh, he, I think he won the uh, five turbo Benelux championship, if I'm not mistaken. Very quick. Uh, well, very quick. <laughs> I think he was very conservative. Whenever I'm in, with, with him in a car, I feel like he, yeah, he didn't like high speed corners. <laughs> but that's where the passion uh, comes from. He, he obviously wanted to share his passion with me from a very young age, but also kind of motivate and guide me into this world. And I think he was keen to give me yeah uh, an opportunity and 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 um hoped and wished that we could ever ever be be part of this world and industry my goodness you are and and what about heroes who who are the drivers that you you looked up to when you were when you were young i always looked up to drivers that were just in front of me so so i i, I often when i was in karting at the national level i knew everything about the kind of international scene and the drivers that were two, three years ahead of me. And um, I never had- Everything to... about the way they, they drove on the track in case you ended up racing them or, or outside the track as well? More the racing, but but uh, a little bit outside the track as well, because naturally you get to know them outside uh, as well, but but more the racing. So I always up, looked up to drivers that were kind of just ahead of me. Obviously, in, in I looked to Formula One and I, you know, um, uh, appreciated and, and looked up to everyone on, on the grid. But if you if you look, if you really talk about a hero, I probably didn't have one, but really kind of respected and, 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 and followed were the guys that were just ahead of me. 
So I, I need some names. Names. I, I'm trying to think. Yeah. So who well, was just ahead of you? Who's who's about thirty? It's what I'm. <laughs> well, in in karting, um, that was you know when you're younger, I think it, it's even more kind of the case. Uh, so in karting, I had a guy. Uh, there was a guy, an English guy called Scott Jenkins. He raced Formula Air, two liter as well. I think it was for CRS at the time when he moved from karting to cars. Was he quick in in cars? I mean, I don't think he had a very fair opportunity but and obviously when i came into international karting I, I was also doing well but it was mainly about guys just ahead of me and especially when i was younger i i was looking up to also a lot of names you won't you know remember like people like marco ardigo he was a, a go-karter who've you know is extremely successful and he is now actually uh running the tony kart not junior team but all the 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 smaller categories and and yeah, I was just living this karting scene. It, it was my life. I, I have no education, but but that's pretty much been my education. University of life. Perhaps you can call it that way, yeah. <laughs> of racing, very much so. <laughs> um, the Prime Minister's coming here in five minutes. We probably ought to leave before the Prime Minister comes here. Well, perhaps we get to meet him. <laughs> yeah, do you still kart now? Do you see it as a way of keeping yourself sharp? Sadly, I haven't had enough time for it um, because... You have been just very busy. And I will admit, when I was in karting, my last race in karting was the World Championship in Suzuka, uh, World Championship, which we won 11 years ago. So Monza and Suzuka were, again, uh, I kind of sweet memories uh, from, from the past, but I, I don't have enough time for it. I always thought I was going to miss it to death, and I, and I do, but at some point you just, you know, yeah, you, you get into a different kind of uh, yeah, life and, and different things are occupying you. Well, you've got certainly plenty to occupy you now. Nick, it's been a wonderful chat. And, and for me and everyone listening to this, best of luck with what's coming next year. Uh, you deserve it. And uh, I know a lot of people are going to be rooting for you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I think we better go because the Prime Minister of Japan is about to come into our room. Sorry to keep you waiting, Your Excellency, but I had to keep talking to Nick. And what a great chat it was. There's a candidness to Nick de Vries that is going to be very refreshing in Formula One. And given his performance at Monza, I have no doubt that it'll do a great job behind the wheel of the Alpha Tauri. There were so many highlights for me in this conversation. I love Nick's description of, and I'm quoting him, his older brother Max, giving him some words of encouragement on the grid at Monza, as well as telling him to ring Helmut Marco the day after the race. And the fact that Nick made the call himself and didn't get someone else to do it was very impressive. Nick, thanks for your time. Good luck with everything. And I look forward to seeing you at a racetrack again soon. Now, please send in your thoughts and stories about Nick. Did you see him race in the junior formulas? Were you at Monza when he finished P9 for Williams? Let me know and I'll read out some of your comments next week. Please send me what you've got at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter or use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. Which brings me on to what you sent in about Karun Chandok after last week's show. And judging by your feedback, he's one of your favourite TV pundits these days. Let's start with this from Raf. Easily one of my favourite episodes of Beyond the Grid, he says. Karun's journey is amazing and his passion for F1 shows in every word he says in this episode. I think many F1 fans must have felt the same when he described his love for the sport since an early age. I agree with you, Raf. And Karun is so passionate about every aspect of the sport, not only the driving bit. 
Next, let's hear from Sid. This episode with Casey hit home for me as an Indian. I remember his and my dad competing in rallying at the same time. Karun's passion for racing clearly comes through and I can't wait for them to figure out how to get the Indian Grand Prix back on the calendar. Well, thanks for getting in touch, Sid. Your dad, Casey's dad, Vijay Malia, the racing scene in India 40 years ago was clearly very vibrant. And yes, we'd all like to see the Indian Grand Prix back on the calendar. Come on, let's try and make that happen. And finally, let's hear from Ben Waterworth. An incredible episode of F1 Beyond the Grid this week. Absolutely loved hearing from Karun and his life obsession with Formula One. He definitely is one of us and a fellow Schumacher fan also makes him even more awesome. Well, well, thanks, Ben. It's great to hear from you. KC is awesome. We're going to have to leave it there for this week, but thank you to everyone who got in touch. We love hearing from you. And please remember to send in your thoughts and stories about Nick de Vries. Why not share this episode with a friend or fellow F1 fan who you think might like to hear it? Help us introduce the world to the sport's newest driver. And what are you going to listen to next? How about our interviews with Nick's future AlphaTauri teammate Yuki Tsunoda or his fellow F2 champions Charles Leclerc, George Russell and Mick Schumacher? Or what about his new team boss, the tough Franz Tost? There are links to all of them in the description for this episode. Thanks also for leaving us ratings and reviews. We love reading them and please keep them coming. And thanks for listening. F1 Beyond the Grid is produced by Formula One and Audio Boom Studios. Listener.